Um, please sit comfortably. Um, it's great to see so many people here um, braving the cold weather to come out um, to meditate with us and participate with us. Um, so this is the first Dharma talk I've given, which I'm both excited and a bit anxious about, of course. Um, and it's going to be about the um, literary figure, be based around the literary figure Don Quixote. Um, because Mado, our resident teacher a few months ago, um, mentioned to me that she had gone to see a musical production of Don Quixote and found some very interesting philosophical things in it. And since I, um, I study Spanish literature and uh, spent a couple years living in Spain, and I'm one of the few people I know that have made it through all a thousand pages of Don Quixote, um, I felt uh, at least in some way um, qualified, but certainly interested to uh, talk about it. And it's something that I think really um, relates to meditation practice and uh, really relates to what we talked about last week in the Dharma talk, which was uh, what Mado talked about, which was this idea that uh, of lose the war, that we're constantly uh, engaging in these battles and trying to win, but very often this is our ego that uh, is what wants to win, and that we can ask ourselves, we might try to ask ourselves, at what point can we just give up and, and allow the other to, uh, whether this means apologizing or allowing the other to um, do what they please, and a big part of this was also the, the stories that we generate, um, the stories of I'm fighting this battle um, and I need to continue with this behavior, with this course of action. And uh, I thought this was, Don Quixote would be a perfect segue from this because um, he's a character, for those of you that don't know, from the novel Don Quixote um, by Miguel de Cervantes that was written uh, first part in 1506, if I'm not wrong, and the second part maybe about 10 years later. And he's a character that has read so many books of uh, these what are called, what were called chivalric romances, and these were basically the epic fantasy novels of the day um, that were circulating quite widely with the advent of the printing press and one of the first kind of forms of popular entertainment and stories about these crusading knights encountering all sorts of magical things and fighting for the love of some lady. And um, Don Quixote was actually a name given to himself. He started off as um, Alonso Quijano, which is a very normal-sounding name, Don Quixote. Quixote kind of sounds like a certain kind of cheese <coughs> in Spanish. Um, so it's, he gives himself this kind of ridiculous name. Um, and he was a landowner, but not a particularly wealthy one, so he was what would be considered upper class for the day. Um, but he was actually known as Alonso the Good, because he was a very kind, generous person. But as in his older age, as, the duty, as his duties began to be less and less, um, he just enveloped himself in reading uh, all these stories, and he became so obsessed with these stories, one night he decides to become Don Quixote. He thinks up a name for himself and decides that he is now, um, by his own accord, a knight errant, and he must wander around and fight these battles. So it's, it's, it's both about he becomes a soldier. He wasn't one 
Um, and he's also a very frail, um, kind of aging man, so he doesn't have the, um, the physique of a knight or the, the physical capacities at all. And he's also just completely living in a story that he's invented for himself uh, that has been stimulated by his desire to kind of replicate these magical, um, heroic deeds of these figures that he reads about. And Cervantes writes in one moment uh, after he declares that he and declares himself a knight, that Don Quixote was spurred on by the conviction that the world needed his immediate presence. And I thought this quote was quite interesting. The world needed his immediate presence. Uh, because in one way, um, this was his downfall, but it almost could have been um, something that led to a very different journey, this idea of presence. And I think the problem here, and one that, uh, to start relating this to a meditation practice is that, or a part of some of my beliefs and why I meditate is we have this, we're constantly given this idea that we have to intervene and that improving the world is a matter of intervention, um, that we need to immediately take action constantly. Um, but for me, um, when I began my meditation practice, I realized um, that there maybe is an enormous benefit to um, doing nothing and sitting and meditating, that the world um, doesn't necessarily need you to do, it just needs you to be. And sometimes that being is enough without this desire to intervene um, because so often this desire to intervene is a story of our ego that makes us into a hero and makes us into something we're not. And so it calls for a different kind of presence. The way that Cervantes is writing about immediate presence here is that Don Quixote imagined that he had to go off on these missions and start rescuing people and um, fighting against evil lords and evil wizards and rescuing women from towers and these kinds of things. Um, but that perhaps the world does need our immediate presence in a very different way of just being present without the story, um, not intervening, trying, trying to find a way to not intervene. And so some of the examples that, some of the ways that Don Quixote begins to intervene, um, some of the famous stories, if you're familiar at all with the narrative, you may have heard is, on his first outing, or one of his very first ones, he comes upon a windmill, which are typical, uh, these beautiful windmills that they have in um, this region of Spain, central south region. And he comes upon a windmill, and he sees these giant arms turning, and he sees these um, as giants. He completely, he has, he has no perception that these are actually windmills. He's convinced that these are giants roaming the countryside. Um, and, and off to go um, sack a city. And uh, he has his faithful companion, his squire, who he picks up, Sancho Panza, um, who is the realist. Don Quixote is the one completely detached from the world, and Sancho Panza is constantly trying to say, no, I don't think this is the case. And, and Sancho Panza is saying, no, I think those are, I'm pretty sure those are windmills. And Don Quixote says, no, 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 you're just a squire. You haven't been educated in these books 
So you don't know the signs and what to look for. Uh, but I, who have been educated, um, will take action. Well, calling for my immediate presence. And he has a, a lance, and he charges at the windmill. And the arm of the windmill catches his lance in just a way that it pulls him all the way up. And he goes, he gets pulled off his horse and circles all the way around in the windmill and is slammed down on the ground. So in a lot of ways, this book also invents slapstick um, kind of physical humor. And he's, you know, he's this frail person. He can barely move for an hour or two in Central Pond. So finally gets him up after this, and he's saddened that he was defeated by the giant, but you know, he vows revenge, continues with these stories. And there's, the, the book is just basically a series of these absurd adventures. He invents um, his um, damsel in distress, Dulcinea, one night. He barely sleeps. He stays up most of the night just imagining stories for himself. He invents a woman, and he gives her a name, and he's constantly looking for her. Um, in the second half of the book, so the first half was published in 1506, and it was a huge success. Um, one of the first best-selling novels, certainly in Spain, but really in the world. And uh, in the meantime, someone had actually started writing an apocryphal version, uh, a pirate version of the sequel. And... Uh, Cervantes was very upset at this, so he decided to write a second half to show that no, this is what happens. This is you know some this isn't the true version. Um, and in the second half, it's a very meta narrative. It's incredible how far ahead of its time it is. But in the second half, it begins with a historian presenting the first half of Don Quixote to Don Quixote, <laughs> as though it were a history, a true history. And saying, yeah, I wanted some clear, historian says, I wanted some clear, Sir, Sir Don Quixote, I wanted some clarification on this episode here when you charged at the windmill or did whatever. And Don Quixote takes a look and he says, oh no, this is all wrong. The part where, you know, I'm deluded and where I'm crazy, it's completely all wrong. So even when confronted with the, the story, it's all wrong. And in the meantime, in the world of the narrative in the second half, Don Quixote has become famous for his um, funny adventures. And the second half largely consists of people inventing uh, games for him to do and things, quests for him to go on. Or he comes upon a castle and they've heard of this hilarious Don Quixote figure. And so they invent a quest or they invent something. And I thought this was really interesting, the way that um, he becomes encouraged to replicate this mad behavior. And... And by the way, the book is very much a criticism of these chivalric romances and these fantasies. Don Quixote is not, um, he's kind of an anti-hero because he's deluded and he's a warning to not being caught up in these. So I thought it was interesting reflecting on how he's encouraged to um, participate in these behaviors. So on one level, he's not only, these stories aren't his own, which made me think of just how interconnected we are to things, that these stories are ones that he's received, that are circulating, that have been around. I mean, they're mythological and they're from the Middle Ages, so these stories have been around a thousand of, thousands of years that he's really becoming uh, engaged in. Uh, so in one sense, they're not his own, but even more than that, he's also encouraged to participate in them. And I just thought of the ways that we um, tend to celebrate madness and foolish behavior. I just thought personally back to my undergraduate party days and how there was like this heroic amount of drinking you could do and uh, and how this really can be tragic as we know here um, close to Penn State 
last year that um, this can lead to um, death, uh, and it's a very serious thing. But the way that, you know, 10 years ago I was convinced that there was some heroic deed to be done in these things, and, and I was, would be encouraged and encourage others to participate. And when people would say, I don't think that's a very good idea, I would say, oh, come on, live a little, or something like that. Um, and I just thought that that was important, and just this sort of foolish character that we celebrate and sometimes want to become is an important idea um, in the novel, I think. And another one of these things that he, he gets involved in, he comes upon an inn. Anytime he comes upon an inn, he's convinced it's a castle. This happens several times. And this this little like roadside rundown thing. And the prostitutes working at the inn are princesses, of course. And, you know, the, the cook is some great lord and some wizard concocting potions. And he's staying the night at one of these castles and a traveling puppeteer comes, uh, Pedro, and he sets up a tableau, this like uh, box for puppeteering where you, I don't know if he's sticking the puppets up or they're hanging down, and this is the entertainment for the night at the inn, and begins to tell a story um, of love, and there's uh, Moorish, the Spanish Arabs involved, and there's there's a moment where they're about to kidnap, and these are puppets. He's acting this out like puppets, and Quixote is observing. And there's one moment where, um, and of course the Arab in the 1500s are the bad guys, um, for the context in Spain at the time. And there's a moment where the Arab um, lord is about to kidnap the princess, and Don Quixote, his immediate presence is needed, so he stands up, <laughs> pulls out his sword and slashes through the tableau and the puppets and completely destroys this uh, puppet scene. Um, even, even when it's, you know, he, he, to the extent, even when they're puppets, he becomes, he is so convinced by narratives that he must react. And this really made me reflect on myself um, and the way that um, I react to, and, and I think all of us do it to a certain extent, but I'm pretty good at it myself, of getting involved in narratives and confrontations and, and a lot of conversations in my head with people. And very often these are confrontational. I had a difficult situation with my roommate. We ended up not getting along very well after living together two years. And I just noticed towards the end of it, I was constantly... Constant, I mean, it was every 30 seconds sometimes I would be engaging in a conversation with him so I could really tell him what I had on my mind. Um, and I was just thinking about this this week and trying to see when I would do it and trying to be mindful of it. And, and one that happened is I had to have my airbag replaced um, because of a safety recall in my Subaru. So I, before class, and I knew it would be a little risky time-wise to go drive to the Subaru dealership out towards Belfont get the rental car that they had for me, and go teach my class. Um, and I woke up late that morning, so I was in a rush, and I thought, okay, if everything goes smoothly, if I get the car fast, I don't know how long the paperwork will take to drop off the car and get the rental and, and so forth, but if everything goes right, I should be fine. And as I'm driving out there and thinking, okay, hopefully this will work out, um, I had invented a scene in my head where things were going very slow and there was lots going on at the dealership and they couldn't get to me right away and I was going to be late for my class and thinking of this, what, what I might be able to say to, you know, I 
expected better service than this, and I have a class to teach, um, and already uh, just generating um, a story for myself to react to. And sure enough, I got there, and everything went smoothly, and I made it to my class 20 minutes ahead of time. Um, but just the kind of um, scenes that we, can that we can simulate in our head. And I thought of, I especially thought of Don Quixote slashing through this puppeteer scene, because I noticed that sometimes when I get really involved in one of these scenes going on in my head, um, especially if I have a sort of confrontational line or like the telling someone off, I will speak it out loud, um, which is quite entertaining indeed when I do it walking around campus and there's people walking around, um, which does happen occasionally. And I have at least one friend, I know I'm not completely crazy because I have at least one friend who has also admitted, has also caught themselves doing this. And I only really notice it when I do it around other people. It probably happens more than I notice just when I'm by myself. Um, but I just thought to the extent that um, that's a real, um, that's a real thing. And this made me reflect on um, a story from um, Charlotte Jo Quebec um, and a book you may have read, Everyday Zen, and a story she relates um, or sort of um, anecdote or um, an allegory in which, you know, imagine you're out on a lake kayaking on a foggy morning and you're just peacefully in your kayak moving along and all of a sudden a boat comes drifting at you and bumps into your boat and gives you a shake. It's just another rowboat, not something big, and gives you a shake and you start swearing, what is this, what the hell is it, what the hell are you doing, you, you know, look where you're going, it's foggy, you need to be careful. And once you've started doing this, you look and realize that there's no one in the boat. That it's just a boat that has somehow drifted off, it's become unmoored, and has bumped into your boat. And you're venting and reacting your anger at this empty boat. Um, and this was kind of Joko Beck's uh, metaphor for really all, all forms of anger and all forms of this kind of lashing out um, is that there's, there's never anyone in the boat. There's always the world is really not about you or it's not nearly as much about you as you, you might expect. But the narratives that we invent, that I'm being careful, it's a foggy morning, and this other person is not being careful and they've bumped into me and there's no one there. Or I'm going to tell this guy off when he slows me down and risks me getting to class late even though I woke up late myself and I've put myself at risk. And then it didn't happen. Um, and in the case of Don Quixote, of course, all of this, his, his entire world is just a complete simulation. He's the sort of um, exaggeration, the extreme, the epitome of the dangers of this. And he does injure himself and many other people along the way. And at the very end of the story, he does. He's defeated by a knight who's actually the historian who realizes that he has to stop Don Quixote before he kills someone or kills himself. So he dresses up like a knight, and a fictionalized knight, and challenges Don Quixote to a duel and says, if you win, I don't remember quite, well, you know, if you win, this will happen, but if you lose, you have to give up being a knight errant. 
And this was difficult, but Don Quixote had to accept the challenge because it was from another knight. Here's the historian in disguise, the knight of the green moon, or some bombastic title that this historian had given, up and given himself. Don Quixote loses the duel, and there's this tragic speech. He's lying on the beach there on the beach in Barcelona. And it's quite a tragic scene, actually. It's very sad. Um, after you've read, you know, 950 pages of being with Don Quixote, and you realize he's finally, he's finally given up. And he returns home and falls ill. And even on the way home, he's, he's mainly just depressed about having failed as a knight. But at some point in the novel, he, um, at the very end, he recognizes, he says, oh, I realize this has all just been fantasy and that I've just been duped. And I just wish I would have realized this earlier. Um, but there's also a quote about how he has, how he admits he had this sense that he knew something, that there was this lingering idea that it was false all along. And I just thought of this as perhaps we could translate this in a Buddhist context to our Buddha nature that, that really knows that when we start engaging in these stories and inventing these narratives for ourselves and this ego for ourselves, that there's this it's really hard to find and it becomes just covered with all these layers of narratives and stories about who we are and what we're supposed to do. But there's this seed that's, that's underneath there that's, uh, that we can always access at any moment um, to kind of break through and arrive at the right kind of presence um, and see that um, we're living in some sort of narrative and some sort of simulation. Um, and that that's something that, that meditation can help us do, have this presence that we, that we really get this sense, or I get a sense very often of chatter coming in this way and chatter coming in this way and, and all these stories just kind of moving through. And as I focus on my breath, I get a sense of these things just kind of passing through. And I realize that there's something kind of stable in the midst of all these stories I'm trying to tell about myself um, that seems to be... Um, that I, that I can trust in and seems to be an intuition that can perhaps um, overcome these um, stories that are constantly, we're constantly telling about ourselves to delude ourselves. How am I on time, by the way? Okay, perfect. I'll, um, I'll end there, and if there's any questions or comments or reflections. Um, yeah, I'm wondering how um, the Bodhisattva who takes a vow to save all beings and those of us who have received precepts receive a vow, take a vow to, um, to save all beings. And that sounds... <laughs> <laughs> a little bit like <laughs> and um, I'm now I'm I mean I've always felt like what does that mean uh, um, I can't save all beings um, but Don Quixote might have felt that way and there must be something to it <laughs> 
because we do we do speak about the bodhisattva and the bodhisattva mm. dedicating his or her life to um, caring and saving damsels in distress and mm-hmm. you know others. So, what do you, do you make of that mm. connection? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a great question, interesting reflection. I, I, this idea kind of popped into my head last night about the narrative, not quite about the bodhisattva, but about just the narratives we have of you know, why we meditate and so forth. That You discuss quite a bit that we, I, and I think I would approach the same thing, is that we should always be critical and always be questioning that. That you, know, you take the bodhisattva vow, save all beings, great. But, you know, you're saying you've always wondered what that means. To me, that's a bit of a way to perhaps protect against this because there's no moment where Don Quixote reflects on, am I really capable of this? <laughs> there's no really self-awareness. Um, and I would also, yeah, I think it's something that raises a flag about that very idea and something that maybe should make us, might make one question that. Um, Anytime there's something, you know, this, this great purpose, um, I, I personally am, am very skeptical of it. Um, yeah, that's about all I can say. <laughs> Thank you, though. It's an interesting thought. Uh, I kind of along that same vein, I, I was you know, reflecting during your talk about how often I do make myself the, the hero or occasionally the villain of these you know, grand dramas and things that work in the, you know, politics and how I would react and what I would say. Um, and I think that something, you know, kind of the, the difference between the Bodhisattva and Don Quixote, maybe that um, in a very Zen-like fashion, I think that we ultimately know that we can't necessarily save all beings, but we're going we're gonna to try anyway. Um, it seems like Don Quixote never had that thought. He, he always knew that he could, of course, mm. being the hero of his story, save all beings. Um, and I think that the, the, the challenge of trying to live the Bodhisattva vow is that um, we, we kind of ultimately know that we can't, uh, but that's not going to stop us from, from trying because it's the, it's the trying that's important, whereas for Don Quixote, it was, it was the doing. Um, and I think that that kind of goes back to what Max was saying at the beginning, where you know, we always want to do, we want to act. Um, you know, being, being the hero of our stories in the center of our own universe, um, but not doing something and just recognizing that sometimes it's just being. This um, is something I'm, I'm particularly terrible at, but I think it's, very, uh, it's a very, very good point, something I'll certainly be keeping with me as I, as I recognize the fabulous stories that I create in my mind where I am always the valiant hero. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for today's topic. It is an adjective, cathartic, mm-hmm. and what does that mean? I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> it derives from Don Quixote, and um, doing something quixotic is, it usually means taking on some foolhardy quest or purpose. Like, I don't like that there's, you know, I don't like that people drink on campus, so I'm going to start a campaign to get, and I'm going to get all the undergrads to stop drinking. <laughs> that would be quixotic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, we 
please return the nutrition's to where they came from and remain standing in front of them. Um, we will bow as a soccer one more time before we head out.